0: podcast one production.
1: The following episode contains elements that may cause distress to some listeners. If it does, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14.
0: Hi, I'm Rosie Waterland. This is Mum Says My Memoir Is A Lie. Your foster dad will stick his hands down your pants and you will feel so, so lucky. It's hard to keep up appearances when your mum hasn't been home in four days. During school holidays, it's fairly easy to hide the embarrassing dysfunction in your life. As long as you don't have to go to class, there's no way you can slip up and reveal you've only eaten Rosie's chicken soup since Sunday. But once school is in session, covering for your mum's latest wine expedition gets a lot more complicated. In about year four, I was maybe at my seventh or eighth school so far, and naturally I had been a premium dweeb at every one of them, except of course for Canberra, the clueless nerd utopia where I had so briefly reigned, and my inherent lack of cool meant I had to be careful about what came out of my mouth at the best of times, let alone when I had left my mum that morning passed out on the living room floor. But Rhiannon and I had become fairly skilled at putting a hazy filter on our lives. We were like human Instagram before there was Instagram. Add a little Valencia and no one will ever know that the picture is seriously flawed. If mum didn't get home in time to take care of baby Taylor, Rhiannon would skip school and do the job for her. Although there really wasn't that much of an age difference between us at 12 and 9, it was never really under discussion that I would be the stand-in caretaker. When there were no adults around, we just slipped into our natural roles. Me, always so panicked about what other people thought of me, would get dressed and go to school each day like nothing was happening. Rhiannon, who never seemed to give a fuck what anybody thought of her, would take on the mothering job and stay home to look after the baby. It should also be noted that the few times Taylor was left in my care, I either dropped her or forgot to change her nappy, so I suppose you could say there were competency issues there also. Mum wasn't gone all the time, but her overnight holidays had certainly begun to increase in frequency, and as skilled as you think you are at pretending you have a normal life, at some point somebody is going to notice that two little girls are living alone in a house with a baby. It was on one such day, when I had dutifully put on my uniform and walked to school, and Rhiannon had stayed at home with Taylor, that we were finally busted." I'm actually surprised I didn't realise what was going on when I first saw the principal knock on my classroom door. She gestured for my teacher, Mrs. Blythe, to come to the hallway, where they spent a few minutes talking about something that looked very important.' When Mrs. Blythe came back inside and started walking towards my desk, I was actually excited. I really wanted it to be about me. Had I won a prize? Was I finally being recognised for being a superstar genius? Had somebody found and been wildly impressed by one of my screenplays in which I married Benny from The Sandlot? I beamed with pride as it became obvious she was making a beeline for my table. Then I remembered... Oh, that's right, I haven't seen my mum in four days and Rhiannon and I don't know how to use the washing machine. What are the chances this is about that and not about me winning an Oscar for a movie I haven't even started in yet? Rosanna, Mrs. Blythe said, a look of pity on her face I had come to recognise as an indication something bad was about to go down. Mummy didn't come home last night, sweetie, and there are some ladies here who'd like to talk to you. She started packing up my things and I was mortified. The entire class had heard what she'd said – All the effort Rhiannon and I put into creating the facade of a perfect life was ruined. Would there ever be a day at school I wasn't humiliated? Hint, no. There was an old lady waiting for me in the hall. She took my hand, even though I was way too old for that shit, just another dagger to my eternally daggy heart, and walked me towards the parking lot where her car was waiting. There was another old lady sitting in the front passenger seat. It was like being arrested by the Golden Girls, and there, in the back, like two criminals who had finally been busted after years on the run, were Taylor and Rhiannon. Rhiannon's head was hanging in shame, and I knew we had finally been caught. The old ladies were docks workers. Someone had dobbed us in. And apparently there would be no more chances. No more staying in halfway houses or rehab centres with mum. No more staying with a friend for a few days until things blew over. It was time for us to be officially removed from care. The government Golden Girls were about to ruin our lives. Mum needed to get better. And this time we weren't allowed to stick around for the ride. We stayed with an uncle for a while. We stayed with our birth grandma for a while. Taylor was separated from us and lived with some of her dad's relatives for a while, but nobody seemed to want to keep us. Whatever test you needed to pass to be a kid that adults want around, we just were not passing it. We were told that all three of us might be split up, that three girls together was too much of a commitment for most carers. Mum was apparently doing well. She had been to rehab and was now back working as a nurse, but it would still be a while before the Golden Girls would trust her again, so we desperately needed somewhere to live. That's when we hit the foster home jackpot. From the start, everybody kept saying how lucky we were. We were just so lucky that anyone was willing to take on three girls, especially when one of them was a toddler. We were just so lucky that they were a wealthy family who lived in a beautiful, big house. We were just so lucky that their son, who went to a very fancy private school, was around the same age as us. We were just so lucky that the foster mum and dad seemed like such lovely people. We were so, so lucky." And it actually was pretty incredible. The first night we went to live with our amazing new foster family, it was like being in a movie where everything turns out fine in the end. We dropped our stuff off at their mansion and drove up to their farm for the weekend. Yeah, they had a house and a farm. And this wasn't just any farm, it was like a kid utopia surrounded by bush. There was a tennis court, a tree house, a water slide, and a flying fox. It was our first night living with the foster family jackpot, and we were so, so lucky. Then it was time to take a bath. There was no hot water at our weekend farm paradise, so our new foster dad heated some up on the fire outside, then he took us to the bathroom and poured it into a massive tub. He told us to jump in, and then he just stood there. My sister and I looked at each other. Come on, he said, before it gets cold. And still he just stood there. This was weird. We weren't sophisticated ladies, but we weren't little kids either. We'd each had a birthday since being taken away from mum. I was 10, Rhiannon was 13, and neither of us wanted to get naked in front of a man we didn't know. But he obviously intended to stay in the bathroom and everything was just so awesome and there was a treehouse and we were just so lucky. So I took off my clothes and jumped in. I didn't particularly want to, but I remember thinking that maybe that's just how their family did things, so I should just do it. That was always my way. So desperate to be cool, so desperate to be liked, I'd do anything to fit in. Rhiannon, on the other hand, got as far as her undies and refused to take them off. He tried convincing her several times, but she stood firm. They had an intense staring standoff until she actually got into the bath with her undies on. To this day, I vividly remember the look on her face. It was equal parts confusion, desperation and humiliation. I tried to embrace the whole thing, laughing as he sat on the edge of the tub splashing us with water, but Rhiannon stayed dead quiet. Later that night, as we sat around the fire outside, a campfire because we were just so lucky, the dad asked me to come and sit on his lap. As soon as I did, he reached inside my pants and rested his hand directly on my bum. I froze. I froze. I had tried to pass off the bath thing as a family quirk, but this was definitely wrong. Or was it? Was it? I was only a kid. Men don't do stuff like that to kids. He must just be playing around. Maybe they just touched bums in this family. But as his fingers tickled and squeezed my skin and moved further and further forward, my whole body stiffened. I thought about my grandma, who we'd been living with right before we went to this foster family. She told me that if anything went wrong, if anything didn't feel right, to call her straight away, and as I sat there, with this strange man's hand feeling its way around the inside of my pants, I stared into the fire and debated whether or not this constituted the need for a phone call. It definitely didn't feel right, but we were just so lucky to be there. I didn't want to ruin everything and be split up from my sisters only to find out afterwards that some people just stick their hands down your pants to be nice. So I stayed quiet. We lived there for almost a year and it continued the whole time. I shared a bath with my little sister from that point on, which he always joined us in the bathroom for. My older sister showered alone, but she wasn't allowed to lock the door and he always found reasons to be in there, like checking if she needed a towel or bringing her a hot chocolate because everybody drinks hot chocolate in the shower. And along with always seeming to miraculously appear whenever we were naked, the hands down the pants thing also kept going. Getting tucked in, sitting on his lap, watching TV, getting a hug, the hands were down the pants. It never felt normal to me, but since his wife must have seen it half the time, I just assumed it was normal to them, and that it wasn't my place to say anything, and they were just so nice, and we were just so lucky. Rhiannon and I never talked about it, not even that first night after the bath, not even when he would go into her bedroom and close the door just to say goodnight, I kept telling myself that we were kids and nobody would ever think that way about kids, so I must have been misinterpreting it. I must have been. About a year after returning home, my mum received a phone call. It was the police and they were investigating claims of sexual abuse made by other girls who had lived with the same foster family. Mum called Rhiannon and I into the living room and asked us if anything strange had ever happened while we were there. We looked at each other and after a moment of tense silence, burst out laughing I've never been able to explain that reaction. I guess we just both had always known that the other one knew, and finally looking at each other in the face with mutual understanding was a little overwhelming. We told my mum everything that night and were formally interviewed by the police a couple of days later. I remember we still tried to tone the whole thing down, though, which in hindsight I know came from humiliation. There was a sense of not wanting anyone to think we had played a part in something sexual. After all, we hadn't stopped it, so did that mean we were okay with it? Wouldn't it be easier and less embarrassing if we all just acted like nothing fishy had happened? Couldn't we just agree we'd had a lovely time and had been so lucky and there were some uncomfortable moments and let that be it? It was only as adults that Rhiannon and I were able to deconstruct everything that went on and get really angry about it, particularly since the man in question was, as far as I know, never charged." There were also feelings of guilt in there as investigators at the time wanted us to testify in court but we were both just too uncomfortable with it, too young, too confused and too embarrassed. But sitting there that first night by the fire, not sure how to handle having a grown man's hand down my pants, I had no idea what the next year had in store. I had no idea his hands were going to be a permanent fixture there. I had no idea that while we were living with the foster family jackpot that made us just so lucky, mum was working hard to secure her next big shift. A man who not only didn't live in house, didn't live in a private rental, but owned his own home. Mum spent the time we were away snagging herself a homeowner. She was determined to pull off her pretty woman plan in the end. So about 18 months after the government Golden Girls came and embarrassed me in my classroom, about 18 months after Rhiannon and Taylor and I were taken away in the back of a car like criminals, Mum was finally allowed to come and pick us up from Pennant Hills. Then she drove the car straight onto the Great Western Highway and headed to our brand-new home in the Blue Mountains. It was time for us to live with Brian, the homeowner. Does that make you sad,
1: Mum? Or angry? The foster... Yeah. Of course it makes me angry. Do you remember oh when you God, got Oh, my God, you got no idea how angry that makes me. Do you Even remember now, when thinking you... about it. Do you remember when you got the phone call? Yes. Who called you? The police called me. A female police officer who, who was with the child abuse squad or something.
0: And what did she say?
1: Well, she basically told me um, what had allegedly happened to these other girls. Yeah. And, like, I thought, oh, that is just shocking. And I was so disappointed when you girls, especially Rihanna, because she was such a shy child, mm. refused to testify about it. And I don't know why we laughed when you told
0: us the police had called. Because we had never talked about it, ever. Well, and it would have been
1: due to nervousness. I I'd know, say. and I think if the police so hadn't called,
0: Rihanna and I would never have. Ever talk to each other about it? Like we wouldn't have said anything. Yeah, but it's much easier, I think, to talk about f- physical violence than sexual abuse when you're a little girl, especially. Oh, yeah. It's God embarrassing. Oh, I just t- remember feeling really embarrassed all
1: the time. We, I think, you were, they took you up to katoomba Police Station, yeah. I think, and I wasn't with you. you were by yourself. Yeah, I don't know why I wasn't included. We got
0: separated.
1: Yeah, yeah, I remember, yeah, probably to make sure you're not lying yeah, or something. We got separated Jesus.
0: and I remember they took me into this room and they asked me heaps of questions about whether I knew the difference between the truth and a lie and stuff. Yeah. And then they asked me heaps of specific questions like I had to draw – an aerial view of what the house looked like. And I had to draw the living room and I had to draw where he sat and where I was sitting. Mm. And then they had this doll and I had to, and you had, and they asked such embarrassing questions, like show on the doll what he did. And, like, that's so embarrassing. But like you were 11, weren't yeah, you? Yeah, it was, I was mortified. And then, I mean, like, do you know? and the, then what the, room did he do this in? And what did he do when you were in the room? And were his hands on your bum or on your vagina? And how much were they on your vagina? And how much, were, like, it went into so much detail. I was so embarrassed. Mm, and I remember coming out mm. of... The interview and seeing Rhiannon and Rhiannon must have been asked all the same questions yeah. as me, and we just looked at each other like we never wanted to talk about it again. No. And so, I, and then I remember you saying they want you to testify in court, and immediately I was just like, "No, no way, I can't get up," because that is basically getting up in front of a room full yeah. of people and talking about
1: sex stuff, and I was eleven. Yeah. No, I mean I was really disappointed that you you couldn't do it. Yeah, apparently this family only took girls. Yeah, they did. They refused to uh, foster boys. How strange. I
0: remember the brother, he said to us, and I didn't know what it meant at the time, he goes, my parents would vote for John Howard, yours wouldn't. (laughs) And I didn't know what it meant. And it was only later I was like, oh, what a little (laughs) shithead. Like, he was just the worst... It's also I always thought that um they were aware that we had a wider support network than other girls might have had. Like they knew we had our grandma around and they knew we had our uncle around. Yeah. And I think that he did worse things to other girls who had nobody.
1: Oh, my God. Do you know what I mean? Unbelievable. I hope so. I mean, it would be really good to know whether anything happened to that man.
0: I don't think it I don't, did. I mean It'd be
1: shocking if he got away with it.
0: What did the police say to you about the outcome just of they, it all? Well,
1: they they didn't tell me the outcome. They just told me that it had happened to other girls. I mean, and they have to be sure, of course, mm. or they're not going to charge a person with this information. That's why they were questioning you so meticulously. But they you know? wanted us but to testify, which means they
0: were yes. sure. Yes,
1: yes, oh yeah. They they obviously decided that. Yeah, definitely.
0: Do you know so, how confused? Like the the first night he did it. Oh, oh, my, I can, I it can vividly like, no, I can remember it in my mind right now exactly. Like can, in the bath, it was weird when he made us get naked, and we were like, "What." Uh, But then I was just like, oh, maybe they're a naked family. I don't know. But then sitting out by the fire, because we were outside. And I remember he, I was wearing a tracksuit and he asked me to come and sit on his lap. And I was like, and even at 10, I was like, well, I'm too, I'm kind of too old to sit on a man's lap. But I was like, okay. And I went and sat on his lap and he just took his hand and just straight away, just stuck it right (laughs) in my pants. And I remember sitting there and I like froze and I was, and in my head, I was like, oh my God, this isn't. I was like, this isn't right. I'm I'm pretty sure this isn't right. (laughs) But then you get confused because you're like, but he's just doing it right here in front of everyone. And I was like, okay, maybe it is. I don't know what, I don't know what to do. Like, I just got so overwhelmed. I didn't know what to do. And I remember thinking I should call Kate and tell Kate, that was our grandma, because she said, call me if anything happens. Because she felt really guilty that she couldn't keep taking care of us and that we had to go to foster home. And so she was like, call me if anything happens. And I remember thinking I should call Kate and ask her, if this is normal. Well, no, because it was embarrassing. Oh,
1: shame you didn't. She would have had you whipped out of there.
0: But yeah. then we felt like everyone was mad at us because I remember you called Kate and told her that this happened and Kate, I got on the phone to her and she said, why didn't you call me? And she seemed really annoyed and I was like, well, I don't, how do you say that? I don't know
1: what to well, say. She, I mean, she met them. Yeah, she did. Kate met them and she absolutely... Assured me they were just lovely couple, and they had this delightful son and oh that that son he lovely, was a weirdo. A lovely house and and you know and a holiday house over 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 there wherever it was. Yeah, and I'm thinking, oh my god, something sus. There's got to be something wrong with these people because she's raving on how wonderful they were. Probably because she was just relieved that she. She didn't have to look after you anymore. She found Mm. someone that she could say was wonderful. Bloody crap.
0: Yeah, no, they were... sorry. They were an odd... Like, aside from the abuse stuff, they were an odd family. They were weird people. And,
1: you know, for all you know, there had been complaints beforehand, before you even went there, to docks. And they were so desperate to have um, people... Look after foster children; that they just didn't mm. do anything about it.
0: I think also, also until finally
1: they obviously had got so much information that the police were involved. But before that, docs were probably aware. Docs are not good. Well, I don't think they take children away from. They're overworked homes and where under- they the home should be getting more help. They're overworked and under resourced.
0: I think is the problem. Yeah, it's like,
1: got even worse since then.
0: I think um, they just saw this this kind of epic wealth. I've had a few women email me since the book came out and have a go at me for not doing more, like really, like it was on me and Rhiannon to make sure he was stopped.
1: Little kids, I know.
0: But you, part say. of you does feel that way.
1: But apparently, you you could have him charged now. You could go to, back and do it now. That's why they can do it. They, they, they're talking about having people charged who did things thirty years ago. I
0: don't they know.
1: remain guilty. I just don't even like really talking about it.
0: Like I, the last time Rihanna and I talked about it together, we both were crying. Like we well, you know, like I just hope to it.
1: God. That family never had anybody else ever again.
0: I don't know. I get upset when I think about what happened to us there. But then I just get tired and overwhelmed and I think, like, I can't... We all went through enough and I just can't... I don't have the the energy or the... I don't even know. I, I don't have, like, what it takes to be the person to um try and and make changes do you know what I mean like I'm I've written my story and I tell my story and I get asked to speak at events with social workers and stuff I feel like telling my story is my way of doing something but I can't like when I got those emails from those women saying you should have done more and like, people say to me now, do you want to charge people? And how can – people always say to me, how can we solve the foster care crisis in this country? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> like, I can't – I survived it. Let me just not think about it anymore. Do you mm, know what I mean? Mm. Like, it can't be my problem. It, like, I – but then I think about all the kids who are there now, and I feel shitty. Yes. I
1: mean, you know, a lot of people that go into it because – a lot of people, uh, you know, go into it with a really good heart and good intentions, but then I th- think you've got other people with ulterior motives, mm. very small percentage. Well, I mean... It's a, like it's a, it's a bleeding shame. Really. A l- most
0: people's ulterior motive, I think, is money. Well, they, you know, they do, they get uh, uh, quite a large sum of money. I've often wondered if that's the reason Uncle agreed to take me later. Because we'd tried foster care and it had just been so bad. And if we'd had a really good experience in that first place, maybe he he would have thought it was okay
1: to let me go back to foster care. I don't know. I think it, I think it was because of a promise that he made to me, believe it or not. What promise? After your father died, he said, Don't worry, Lisa, I'll make sure that the girls get a good education. Rhiannon left school early.
0: Yeah. but Well, he did. He sent me to one of the best bro- schools yeah, in the country.
1: You showed great, great promise. So basically he kept his promise to me from all those years ago mm. when your dad died, which is very admirable of my brother. Mm.
0: That's all right. We'll talk more about him because, later anyway.
1: Yeah. All right. Yeah. Sweet. If this episode has caused distress, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14. In the next episode... And um, I remember coming home, and now you were sitting underneath a streetlight reading. He kicked you out because you wouldn't do the dishes. (laughs) <laughs> oh my god, did he cop it from me? So
0: I'm such a I, dog I a got of, out of the house and I sat under a streetlight and read a book. Yeah, and you waited for me to come <laughs> home. <laughs> Mum says my memoir is a lie is recorded in the studios of Podcast One. Recording assistance by Felix Bray. Audio production by Nick Slater executive producer is jamie show for more episodes head to podcastone.com.au or download the podcast one app